Kids, I just have a relatively brief word for you, but I do want to start with you and hope you continue to listen in if you're able. Kids, at a very young age, you begin to notice which of your friends have the best toys, have the biggest and fanciest house, which of your friends seems to have everything that a kid would want. I don't know if you guys have read uh, this book series called Little Critter. There's this particular book that I've read my boys many, many times that is from the Little Critter series. And in this particular book, Little Critter becomes friends with a new kid from his school, and his name is H.H., very fancy-sounding name indeed, because H.H. comes from a very fancy family. And as Little Critter gets to know him and goes over to his house, he finds out soon enough that, little, uh, that H.H. has all the toys that a kid would want has a pool, has the biggest house, the fanciest house. And yet, what Little Critter learns is that you can be rich in other things other than just toys and a big house. Really, at a very young age, you can begin to believe that having all of those things is what makes you happy. And that is simply a lie. It is a lie that... Satan wants us to believe. And in today's passage in Revelation, Jesus is simply trying to help people of all ages see through that lie and to see clearly that money and things can't buy you happiness and that only Jesus himself is the source of all life and happiness. And I hope for you then, similar to the message in this little critter book, but so much more in depth that as you walk out your faith with Jesus, that you see that these things of the world, the best toys, the biggest house, that these things don't compare to the life and the happiness that comes through Jesus, the one who loves us no matter what. I hope you continue to tune in, kids, if you're able again, and we'll dive in deeper into this passage in Revelation. Kids and adults alike, I grew up in the 80s, and the 80s are known for its ostentatious wealth, its power suit, and it's the first cell phones that were so big, clearly it was a great sign of wealth as well because everyone can see how ginormous your cell phone is. And one of the movies that epitomized the 80s is this very famous movie by Oliver Stone called Wall Street starring Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen. And Michael Douglas plays this protagonist, if you can call it a protagonist, but his name is Gordon Gecko, and he has this famous line that he says in this large shareholders meeting. And he says, greed is good. And I just want to give you a little bit of context for how that quote fits in, because actually the quote is not greed is good. And so hear what he says in this shareholders meeting, a little bit more of it. He says, in the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cut-throughs, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, 
but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Greed is good. It's easy to put down Gordon Gecko's words when you reduce it to just that soundbite, but when you hear just even a little bit more of that quote, you begin to see that there are still many people who live by this philosophy. Maybe no one is so bold to just declare it as Gordon Gecko does, and yet many people's lives are driven by a similar sentiment. Shark Tank is a very popular show that I don't know how many seasons, let's say it's 10 seasons. Isn't the appeal of this popular TV show Shark Tank simply this, anyone can achieve the affluence of the sharks, right? That is the dream of the show, the dream of getting on that show, the dream of making a deal with one of the sharks who will take these measly companies to the levels of affluence and success that the sharks have. This message is so ubiquitous, so everywhere that it seems no matter how much money you have, whether you're rich or poor, no matter what political beliefs you have, no matter which side of inequality you hang, you are not immune to believing this message of affluence. We are fish and affluence and the belief in affluence is the water we swim in. It's obvious right now as well that it's very in vogue to hate on the rich right now, right? Inequality is a very real issue in our world. I just clicked on this thing this week that tried to show in scale um, the, the amount of inequality there is. And Jeff Bezos was like a big, a big uh, example of it because he, I don't know, he's worth $139 billion or something. And so you have to, it kind of shows like, you know, the average person maybe makes $1 million over the course of its life and that's like a dot. And then you just have to scroll. You scroll for like, seemingly minutes that shows in scale the amount of wealth that Jeff Bezos has. So inequality is a real thing. But let's ask this question. Who are the rich, at least as the Bible refers to? Are the rich just the top 10% richest people in the world? Are the rich the top 1% of the world? Or the top 0.1% of the world? or perhaps the top 0.00001% of the world. That's five zeros. And I came with that number because that very same thing that I clicked on said that the 400 richest Americans have almost $3 trillion of wealth, which is equal to the combined wealth of the, the bottom 60% of Americans, or 180, roughly 180 million Americans' wealth. It sort of makes hating on that rich doctor in town with their big house seem kind of silly when we consider how much richer people can be. Rich is a very relative term. It's also how most of us excuse ourselves from warnings against the rich in the Bible or even from the world. We tell ourselves that we can't possibly be considered the rich compared to all these other super rich people. And how about this question? Does this mean a moderately rich Christian in a third world country never has to pay heed to any of the Bible's warnings because, relatively speaking, there's probably 80% people more rich than this moderately rich Christian in a third world country? Jesus did say it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Was Jesus hating on the rich when he said that? No, Jesus was speaking to the heart. 
Jesus was speaking to the spiritual temptation that comes with being rich. In today's passage, we will be exploring the prostitute in the book of the Revelation. And the symbol of the prostitute similarly cuts through to the heart just like Jesus did. And we will explore how the prostitute symbolizes beguiling affluence and the temptation it poses to the world and to the church as well. And we will see how the world marvels at affluence and is complicit with the prostitute in it. And hopefully we'll see this main point, that God will destroy prostituting prideful prosperity. So let's seek first the kingdom of God. God will destroy prostituting prideful prosperity. So let's seek first the kingdom of God. Let's first kind of look at the nature of the prostitute. Again, I've already said the prostitute in Revelation symbolizes beguiling affluence. And so let's take a look at the nature of the prostitute here and how the beguiling beauty and allure of the prostitute leads astray. Verse four says this, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. The prostitute epitomizes wealth and luxury and pleasure. And if you read, again, chapter 17 and 18, you'll see many references to this wealth and luxury and pleasure. One commentator says this, as the beast portrays the state's power to coerce religious conformity through violence, so the prostitute symbolizes the seductive appeal of a worldly economic system driven by the quest for affluence and pleasure. This quest for affluence and pleasure is beguiling because neither of those things are sinful in and of itself. If we, we see in scripture that the rewards that God promises us, you could say, are wealth, affluence, pleasure. And as with so many sins, Satan twists what the Lord made good into something that brings destruction for us. Money is not the problem, and as Paul says, it is the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. And the beguiling nature of the prostitute is made so much more clear because we are shown in the book of Revelation that the prostitute mimics the bride of Christ. Both, a commentator says this, both prostitute and bride are adorned in gold, jewels, pearls, and fine linen. Babylon's apparel, the prostitute's apparel, is opulent purple and scarlet, while the bride's is bright, pure white. They're adorned in almost exactly the same things, other than one seems very seductive and luxurious and the other pure. You could think of it this way. Both are beautiful, but one is kind of trampy and the other is classy. And John, even in this vision, is partly beguiled by the prostitute, even though he sees her much more clearly for what she is in this vision. Verses six to, uh, uh, chapter 17, verses six through seven says this. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The angel is asking a rhetorical question, really. And the answer to the rhetorical question is a rebuke at John for marveling at the prostitute. But John's marveling is not just admiration for the affluence. John's marveling is also mixed with fear, shock, 
awe and confusion because the prostitute has been unveiled for him to see her for what she really is. G.K. Beale, which is a great, great commentary on the book of Revelation, says this, possession of wealth is not the reason for God's judgment of Babylon. The cause lies rather in the arrogant use of it and trust in the security that it brings, which is tantamount to idolatry. And the truth of the prostitute's end in destruction becomes all the more clear in chapter 18, which is really a judgment of her. Verse 7, chapter 18 says, As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. This, my friends, is the definition of hubris. This prostitute is prideful in her affluence and a pridefulness that leads her to not living in reality. She thinks she can be, she can be insulated from all mourning. This prideful, prostituting prosperity is explained even more directly in Ezekiel 28, which this section of Revelation alludes to. And I think it will help us understand the nature of this beguiling affluence. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seats of the gods in the hearts of the sea. Yet you are but a man not and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. This whole picture helps us to see that God through the book of Revelation is not judging wealth in and of itself, rather the heart attitude that can, can, that can come with wealth. So what is the temptation of the prostitute? The temptation then is how affluence makes you godlike. The temptation for all then is of how affluence makes you godlike in the sense of giving you godlike powers. Godlike in being able to provide for yourself and your family security and comfort and self-reliance and power and choice. And in this sense, it doesn't matter, again, whether you're rich or poor. It is about what you believe in and what you aspire for in life. Not many of us are the Gordon Geckos of the world. In fact, I don't think I would classify anyone in this congregation in that way. But all of us can still believe in our hearts, believe the lie that affluence can save us, that affluence can give us all that we want in life. If only we can have all that Gordon Gecko has without the unethical behavior, then how great would that be? If only we can be like our friend H.H. and have all the greatest toys. And this is what drives us to believe in affluence over belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the application question to you would be this, to ask you, do you believe that affluence will ultimately provide you with security, with comfort, with self-reliance, never having to ask people for help again, with power, with choice? Do you aspire to have 
affluence to attain these things for yourself and your family. I'm not talking about fancy houses and cars and toys or any of that stuff. I'm talking about something deeper than that. Ultimately, only God can provide those things. Of course, it would be silly to not recognize that affluence does insulate us from some level of problems in this world. It would be silly to not recognize that money can buy certain things. But our lives are in God's hands, and perhaps a global pandemic is a better reminder than in any other time about both what money can buy and what money cannot buy. We see and we are reminded that though, yes, maybe it's easier for the super rich to be insulated from COVID-19, yet the same hand we see NBA superstars, famous Hollywood actors becoming sick with COVID. The rich maybe can retreat more easily into an insulated world, but they're still not immune to sickness, to emptiness, and to sadness. God looks at your heart, not your bank account. Do you think Jesus is going to judge you by whether you have $10 or $10,000 or $10 million when he returns? No, Jesus is going to ask you whether you loved people, whether you sought first the kingdom of God, whether you were steward of the things that he has given you, including your money. Is there pride in your heart for what's in your bank account or even just for what you have done to provide for your family? A prostitute sells her body for money. What do you sell for affluence and the things that we believe affluence can provide? Do you sell your marriage, your family, your integrity, your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with friends, your ethics, your humanity for affluence and the things that we think affluence can buy? What are you willing to pay to achieve the affluence you want? All of us have to wrestle with that question. And God gives us a clear message, both that we heard in Isaiah 48 and here in Revelation 18. Verse four says this, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. There's a clear call from our Lord Jesus to see with eyes unveiled the truth of the lie of affluence and the truth that it is so easy for us to live in the way of the prostitute without even knowing it, that we become so beguiled by the prideful, prostituting prosperity which mimics the church that often we think we're just following Jesus just fine with regards to affluence. We have to allow the Lord to examine our hearts to convict us and how we are to come out of the prostitute. I really wrestled with specific applications here. And I realized it's very difficult to give specific applications because it is a matter of the heart. It's not about looking at someone to see even what they tithe or what things they possess. It is a matter of the heart. May the Holy Spirit move in us powerfully that we will not want to take part in the sins of the prostitute and to share in her plagues. Let us allow the Holy Spirit to show us the way in which we believe the lie of affluence. But even in this section of Revelation, what is made very clear to us 
is that the prostitute will be destroyed and the saints will be vindicated. Verse 20 says this, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Referring to the prostitute. God's call to us is to seek first the kingdom of God rather than love affluence. God's call for us is to go forth into the world with the gospel and rejoice at the vindication of those who have died for the gospel, who have sacrificed for the gospel, that we may be like them. The gospel is what enables us to see clearly the lie of affluence as making us godlike. We cannot be God. Only God can be God. God, The gospel tells us that the King of kings and the Lord of lords emptied himself so that we might be filled with the riches of Christ. The gospel tells us that he who was rich became poor out of love for us. The gospel tells us that he who had no sin became sin for us. The gospel tells us that God is at work to unveil the lies that we live in so that we might be set free to live in the abundance of God himself. The gospel tells us that Jesus' act of emptying himself is so powerful and so inclusive that, inclusive that anyone who would choose to believe in him can be set free. That if we believe in his death on the cross for the sins of the world and his resurrection from the dead to give us new life, that we too can share in life to the full with Jesus himself. The gospel tells us that even the most unethical person, even the Gordon geckos of the world can be turned to faith into Jesus Christ. Do not envy those who seem to have everything. Have compassion for those who seem to have everything and yet cannot enjoy them and do not know life to the full in Jesus. Our Lord owns, a thousand, uh, owns cattle on a thousand hills. He holds the stars in his hands. He creates and sustains everything in this world. He is the owner of all the riches in this world. And his riches far exceed the measly riches of the super rich of this world. Let us believe in the gospel and hold forth the gospel to a world, trusting that only God is God. And through the gospel, we share in the likeness of God. We are being made like him and that the promises of the gospel, we become true, that we will enter the promised land led by our Lord Jesus himself. Let us pray.